Wonderful freezing day of Yom Ha'atulata. Yes, Tuesday night has arrived. Um, well, you know, it's, it's, it's Monday night, but according uh, to Islam, sun goes down, new day begins. So it's Tuesday now. Uh, so I hope uh, Tuesday has been treating you well so far. And um, that, that Monday you got behind you was a pleasant one. Hope you had a lovely weekend. Um, uh, because, well... Uh, some bit of a, a bit of a, a, a nothingness kind of day in terms of business news. Uh, not much really kind of moving the markets in any one way or the other. Uh, the biggest, the biggest issue international investors are considering at the moment is that uh, it doesn't look as though the U.S. Fed is going to be embarking on uh, sharp cuts this year. Um, Still expecting an, an interest rate cut at the next meeting uh, this month, um, but uh, they only expecting like a, a I don't know point two five percent cut, which is actually quite a lot when you've only got an interest rate of two point seven five. So you cut it by two point five, cut it down to two point five. That's mm, actually quite a lot. It's still a sizable chunk of your of your interest rates that you're paying. Um, fully expecting the South African Reserve Bank to scale back its uh, repo rate by an equal measure, 0.25% at its next meeting. A lot of uh, criticism has been fired at uh, the South African Reserve Bank. I don't, I don't know if any of it has actually hit the mark. Um, it's more a matter of, you know, when South Africans uh, open fire, we end up shooting ourselves in the foot mainly because we keep our aim so low. Hmm? Yeah, yeah, we always like uh, go and look at for those, um, what do they call it, um, the uh, <clears throat> the lowest common denominator, that's it, the lowest common denominator. We always chase off the lowest common denominator and shoot ourselves in the foot whenever we start firing off from the hip or from the lip about uh, issues, of, issues of national importance, the South African Reserve Bank. We need to nationalize the Reserve Bank to save the Reserve Bank. Yes, like, like you know, nationalize ESCOM is bankrupt. Nationalize South African Airways is bankrupt. You know, we must look at anything that's nationalized in this country and it's bankrupt. <clears throat> it's, it's almost as though, like, you know, the, the, the ANC has always been trying to edge towards um, privatization of national assets. Um, because, of course, there's lovely signature fees to be made from, from, from selling off the national silverware. Uh, your signature fee is a fee you get paid for putting your signature to a piece of paper. So say you're the government of, you're the Minister of Transport and you sign, okay, you can, you can construct a new, a new highway. Uh, and you sign over there, you give a permission head. Even before you put your signature on the paper, your hand is held out and, uh, you know, the appropriate monies have changed. Um, that seems to be the, the, the common way of doing business now in South Africa nowadays, uh, very sadly, I must say. It's almost as though the, uh, the ANC are agents of the French and the Americans to destroy our country. Uh, yeah, you know, you can get all kinds of crazy ideas coming into your head when you kind of like look at our blasted landscape, our obliterated uh, national prospects. 
the South African dream, mm, which is like to own a, a corner of pavement to sell sweets. It's my own little spot on the pavement, and I'm selling sweets from here. Yeah, free electricity, I suppose, really. And my, my, I still hold the view um, that, in actual fact, electricity to residences uh, should be free. Yeah. I mean, uh, human beings only consume a small fraction of the electricity that is produced by South Africa, around about um, 12 to 17 percent. Uh, of all the electricity produced in South Africa is in actual fact consumed by human beings. The rest are consumed by business and mainly the big mining industry and the huge big smelters that they have. Um, an average size smelter will consume about as much electricity as uh, Benoni, you know, a mid-sized little city like Benoni. Uh, one smelter will consume the same amount of electricity. <clears throat> And, well, uh, that means that the vast uh, vast majority of electricity produced in this country that fouls our water, that has all of us working hard in order to produce it, uh, is in actual fact consumed by industry, uh, which for me says that, well, well, then, you know, industry should pay. Uh, you get all these stories about how, uh, you know, get a, you get a 20-year supply contract signed, like the bulletin one, so one I'm thinking about specifically, um, uh, you get a 20-year deal and, 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 you, and you get rebates because you've got a 20-year deal. You know, you're going to be a customer of ESCOM for 20 years and we're going to be consuming your electricity for 20 years, so, so give us a discount on the price, you know. That's what uh, the big, the big uh, energy users are able to negotiate for themselves because, you know, I'm a big customer, so I'll organize a big discount. However, small little customers with their small little houses and their small little stoves and their small little geezers, I don't have anywhere near the negotiating power. We kind of like, uh, you know, if we try and uh, negotiate lower prices for electricity, the only way we can do it is by marking an X on a piece of paper every five years. And uh, it seems to be a rather ineffectual way of managing electricity prices is putting an X on a piece of paper. So far, it hasn't done anything. It's a bit like the Reserve Bank trying to lower your oil, international oil prices by raising uh, interest rates. You see, um, uh, most inflation in South Africa is not driven by crazy consumers uh, spending too much. It's not created by an overheating economy. Uh, it's created by a weakening rand, but principally through oil imports. So uh, you see prices are rising in South Africa because international oil prices are rising, not because our economy is overheating, uh, but uh, because our Reserve Bank's inflation targeting policy had that specific clause removed uh, around about 10, 15 years ago, you know, shortly after it was introduced. When inflation targeting policy was first introduced in, into South Africa, it was allowed to consider the fact that exogenous price increases, price increases coming from outside, could be ignored when trying to calcul when calculating inflation in South Africa. So, like, say we say that uh, okay, we've got an inflation rate of around about six percent at the moment. No, so it's, it's, it's um, around about three and a half, four percent. In fact, it's not. It's around about four point five percent. All right, so say we've got an inflation rate between 4 and 4.5% at the moment. That's the rate at which prices are increasing. 
uh, then uh, we're going to we reckon that uh, 1.3% percentage points of that come from oil so we'll do we'll subtract 1.3.4.5 and we'll get 3.2 which would be our interest rate now it was right in the middle of the inflation targeting band between three and six percent in fact it's not it's on the low end of the band you know that's where inflation uh, inflation really is our internal inflation south african inflation uh, inflation, which is uh, perhaps, uh, which can be influenced by adjusting interest rates in the South African economy. You see, uh, ad- um, increasing interest rates in the South African economy because the oil price is going up is going to do nothing. It just increases the burden on all of us, doesn't it? Hmm? You've got to pay, pay higher interest rates. People put up the prices all over the place in order to be able to afford the higher interest rates. You know, so in, in a way, in, inflation, uh, interest rates actually push up inflation in a way because it puts an added cost into the economy. Um, <clears throat> so raising interest rates in South Africa because the oil price is going up is an idiotic policy. Completely idiotic. Completely, completely idiotic. Um, you know, we have an inflation targeting policy. Uh, Tito Mbaweni, while as he was bowing out as the Reserve Bank governor, um, uh, fired off a few parting shots at such critics as myself, I suppose, saying that, well, you know, people go on and on and on about how um, raising interest rates uh, isn't a good way to manage the economy. Uh, there are many kind of complaints uh, that you can fire at it, which I will do so in a few moments, but not right now. Let's, let's, let, let, let's let, let Tito have his moment. Okay, when he said, well, uh, or whatever the criticisms there are about uh, raising uh, inflation or, manage, or adjusting inflation rates to manage the economy, um, they can say what they like about it, but uh, it is nevertheless impartial and it works. That's what Tito Mbweni said as he is, he is parting shots as he is walking out of the door of, of the Reserve Bank. Uh, I think it was back in around about 2008. Um, he's now our finance minister. Um, used to be the labor minister. He started off as the labor minister, which was appropriate. I mean, uh, he was a major socialist and communist. Not that I see anything wrong with that. I mean, it's, uh, it's almost as bad as being a capitalist. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, these two, uh, these two idiots, Tweedledum and Tweedledee, who kind of like way down the seesaw that we know as um, Western civilization. You know, on the one hand, Hitler is weighing it down and he's banging the floor and he's banging the floor. And then he's uh, given a push and Hitler's taken up and thrown off. Uh, and on the other side, you have the flower power children. They're going on about love and kindness and all of these wonderful, lovely things. They're putting flowers in the barrels of, um, of, of soldiers' rifles and saying we need to have peace in the world. All we need is love. All we need is love. And that's all they're all about. And they hold themselves in their little woolly imaginations and say, see, we're nice people. We're nice people. We're nice people. And then, you know, of course, they become very bad at managing the economy and all of these kinds of things. And therefore, the weight sort of slowly slides down again. Vroom, boom. And the other end of the seesaw comes down. Instead of having um, Hitler at the other end of the seesaw, now you've got Donald Trump with a red tie. It's going on, ah, we are the indispensable nation of the world. We are the indispensable nation of the world, and we will go and kill anyone who says otherwise. Yay. Mm. Drain the swamp. You know, that's uh, Western uh, civilization for you. Mm. 
an idiot on one side and an idiot on the other side, and swinging up and down with no real kind of like uh, sense of balance, you see. There's no sense of balance in Western intellectualism. So as I say, you know, communists, capitalists, same kind of thing, really. You ask, you can ask an Afghan, what's the difference between a communist and a capitalist? And you say, aha, that's easy. You say, oh, he's been to the London School of Economics. He says, no. Capitalists, they attack from Pakistan. The communists, they attack from the north. Yeah, capitalists attack from the south and communists attack from the north. But other than that, there isn't any difference whatsoever. They come and blow you up and try and steal everything. Of course, you see, both of them are predicated on the idea that of class in society, that there are class divisions in society. The capitalists want class divisions because that keeps the 1% in power, you see. The 99%, all of these serfs wandering about um, without any family ties, whereas the 1% holds on to their family ties. Because that's how, that, that, that's how you recognize the 1%, isn't it? Uh, the 1%, uh, it's like the Rothschilds. Oh, you see, you recognize them by their surname. Mm, it's the Ruperts. Aha, surname again. It's the Oppenheimers. Aha, surname again. You know, you see, the, the Rockefellers. You know, it's not just that Rockefeller guy. It's the Rockefellers. It's the Rothschilds. It's the Oppenheimers. It's the Ruperts. Mm, you see, it's plural. Family name. Family that is how you distinguish the 1% from the 99%. You thought it was with wealth. <laughs> no, my dear. No, 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 no. It's not with wealth that the 1% is distinguished. It is with name. It is with family. You see? Family fortunes uh, come and go, not as quickly as nuclear family fortunes. Because you see, when you speak in family, and the 1%, you're speaking extended family ties. Although, you see, the difference between 1% family ties and Muslim family ties which is, you see, a Muslim society isn't a 1%, uh, 99% society, which is the society of the capitalists and the communists, you see. Uh, the capitalists well, want a, a class-divided society in order to be able to create an army of workers, an army of consumers, you know. You have the small little part and you call it the middle class. You put a little bump in the middle of the prison cell and you say, people who live in this bump are better off than the other guys. But in actual fact, most people are just living by one salary to another salary. Um, savings of, of the middle class have gone, been completely disappeared. They're all into the hands of the 1% in America. You can go and have a look at the graphs and so on if you like. Google it. You'll see. So like this, um, you have this line that kind of like holds to the floor, like um, like a, a, a virus under a carpet, you know. It can't really rise very high because of the weight of the carpet. Microbes are not very strong at lifting carpets, you know. Yeah, killing human beings is fine, yeah, but fine. Okay, so we'll, we'll liken ourselves to microbes, us human beings, underneath the carpet. You'll see, you, you, you'll see on the, on, on the left-hand side of the graph, it like, kind of like it's scraping the floor, barely lifting off, barely lifting off, you know, and then suddenly right towards the end of the graph, it kind of shoots up into the sky. Yeah, the 1% holding all the money. And how do they hold on to the money? They hold on to the money through the generations. You see, uh, a one percenter or the head of a, a clan, a business, a family business, he thinks about his grandchildren, you know. He's wondering, well, how, am I, how am I going to ensure that this wealth remains in the family and that my grandchildren are going to be able to inherit something? 
you see. So that means that the head of an extended family or an, um, you know, a clan or a one percenter like the Rothschilds or something, he's thinking 50 years ahead. He's thinking 25 years ahead because he's thinking of his grandchildren. So he's got a 25-year plan. He's got a 50-year plan. Whereas the head of a household in a nuclear family, he's like uh, trying to plan how he's going to spend this month's salary. And he's not thinking about his grandchildren. He's thinking about his children, yes. He's thinking about himself. He's thinking about his wife. And he's wondering, how on earth am I going to get through to the end of the month? How am I going to get through to the end of the month? You see, that's what class division does. You see, it doesn't matter whether you're a capitalist or a communist. Uh, class division uh, is a sign that people have been torn away from their organic identity. The organic identity, their primal identity. They have been disturbed from their factory settings. And in Islam, what we try and do is we try and restore factory settings. You see, that's why we have the kalima. Yeah, we have the kalima to restore factory settings. We are we're encouraged in Islam that, um, you know, you must prepare for hajj. And we've got hajj season coming up soon, inshallah. You must prepare for Hajj. You must prepare for that day when you're going to be standing all alone in your thoughts overlooking the plain of Arafah, considering that day of standing, that day of standing. Hmm. We think of, 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 of terrible punishes we can inflict on people. Hmm. But when Allah Ta'ala calls us for judgment, it's going to be called the day of standing, the day of Qiyamah. You know, when we stand in Salah, we call it Qiyam, when we're standing up. Kiyama. It's going to be the day of standing. We're going to be standing there and standing there and standing there. If we aren't one of those fortunate ones underneath the arsh on a raised platform, eating the best of foods among the best of companions, hmm? with doe-eyed maidens handing food into our mouths, such succulent morsels. Hmm? And the first thing we're going to eat, first thing we're going to eat, cod liver. No, no fish cakes made out of cod liver. That's so the first thing we're going to eat. It's quite amazing. You're going to have a look at uh, functions of cod liver. It's a really intriguing little story. But anyway, you can, you can go and have a look at that yourself. Um, yeah, cod liver oil. Really, really healthy stuff. It's like gold almost. Uh, so we're going to be standing. Kiyama. Waiting for judgment. Mm. And we're told on the plain of Arafah when we stand there, we go on Hajj in order to cast away all of those evil influences that we've picked up in our lifetimes. And we return to what condition? We return to the condition we were in our mother's womb. We must be reborn. We must be reborn as Muslims, so that when we return, we're like a new person. You see, we need to go on Hajj in order to restore factory settings, to return to that condition we were when we were in our mother's womb. Hmm? When people don't do that, they start picking up on false ideas, false consciousness, you could call it, um, lies of the dunya, false identity. We start believing we are different from how Allah Ta'ala has created us. The first sin is pride. We take that pride and we say to us, I'm better than him. I'm better than him. I'm better than those people. <laughs> Look at that. I'd never do that. Not me. Mm -mm. Hmm? You know, we forget about the sins that we have. You know, we like our own sins. We don't like other people's sins. Quite amazing, you know. 
So we don't restore factory settings. And we live. We live in the comfort of our prejudices. And then when we die, it's all a terrible wake-up call. Yeah, we restore factory settings with La ilaha illallah. La ilaha illallah. With the La ilaha, we take the false God out of our heart. There is no God. Illallah, but God. There's only God. You see, you take the false out and you put the two in. Put the light Allah's nur into your heart. Fill it up with nur. Fill it up with true consciousness. Get the false ideas out of you. All those ideas of what you think you've done. What you think you haven't done. The good things and the bad things, you know. You need to throw it all out of your heart. Because your ideas of the good that you've done, you may have actually have done bad. Or even that you've done good and then you say, I did it. Whereas Allah Ta'ala did it. And just made you the means. Hmm? You know, we've got all these ideas inside our head. Need to empty it all out. Put Allah Ta'ala into your heart. Restore those factory settings. Return to the condition you were in your mother's womb. Remind yourself of your primal identity. Who you really are as a Muslim. Don't let nonsense like class divisions come and take us away. It would seem, you know, looking at the time of Jahiliya around, around the world at the time before Nabi Karim sallallahu alayhi wa come along. It would make for a fascinating history lesson. In fact, maybe I should do that this Saturday. You know, on Saturday afternoons, I, I have a, 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 a World of the Ummah show, Darul, Darul Ummah, on a Saturday afternoon between three and four. I think, I, I, I think this week what I should do is have a look at Jahiliya in the rest of the world. You know, we, uh, we read a lot, a lot about uh, the Jahiliya in the time before Nabi Karim sallallahu came along. The Sahaba tell stories about burying their children in the desert, burying their daughters, and so on. Hmm? Terrible stories. M- making the wife of the Kaaba naked. Uh, really, very, very, very strange stories. Huh? The whole Kaaba been packed with 360 idols. Hmm? Almost one for each day of the week. Yeah, it's, uh, but we, it's, it's, so we've heard plenty of stories about Jahiliya in Arabia. But what about Jahiliya in the rest of the world? Most particularly, it's very interesting to have a look at what was happening in the Christian world before the birth of Nabi Karim, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And now Trinitarian Christianity, the belief in this three-in-one God, threw Europe into the Dark Ages. You, you, you speak to... Western historians nowadays, they speak about the Dark Ages as though it was over the whole world. They're actually still European, Americans. When they speak about the Dark Ages, they think it was Dark Ages across the whole world. Uh, But in actual fact, it wasn't. It was only for Trinitarian Christianity. That's how much Allah Ta'ala dislikes it. Hmm? They were thrown into ignorance for over a thousand years as a result of moving to Trinitarian Christianity. But anyway, uh, we, inshallah, we, 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 we'll deal with that on Saturday at the, in the Darul Ummah show that I have on a Saturday afternoon. So between four, you can always chime in and tune in. If you're nothing much doing on a Saturday afternoon, you're lying on the sofa, take it easy. Very interesting, inshallah, this, uh, this, uh, this, this Saturday. We'll have a look at uh, what was Jahiliya like uh, in Europe. Yeah, we will just focus on Europe. We'll focus. We will. We'll do a history lesson on uh, history of early Christianity. How how were the Gospels put together? I don't know, how were those four Gospels that uh, make up the New Testament, as it's called? 
Although you see the Jews have the Old Testament, Christians have the New, uh, New Testament, and Muslims, we have the Final Testament. So it's very, 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 very interesting little lesson to go and have a look at what was the history of Christianity uh, before the time of the coming of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. A very, really, really fascinating history, really, and uh, the role of Trinitarianism in all of that. Arianism and Unitarian Christianity, followers of Isa alayhi salam who denied the Trinity, who denied that there was this three-in-one God, and more importantly, most importantly, denied that Isa alayhi salam was Allah, or a'udhu bilimina shaitani rajim. May Allah protect us from such. Well, anyway, well, uh, that uh, doesn't make for much of a, a business show so far, I must say. All he's doing is trying to, trying to, uh, trying to sell his, his Saturday uh, Darul Umar show on, on his business show. What I'm saying, well, I'm trying to sell something. It's a business show. Come on. Yeah? There's sales techniques. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to show practical sales techniques to my listeners. Um, anyway. Uh, coming up a little bit later after this quick commercial break. We're going to have to go for a quick commercial break. Word from the marketplace coming up next. But after that, we'll be dealing with platinum miners and a whole lot of other stuff. I promise you, we're going to stick to real hard rands and cents kind of business news. Don't go away. Marukha Sahaba, the voice of Ahlu Sunnah wal Jama'ah. alaikum. Well, okay. Let's do the tail of the tape quickly. Let, 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 let's just stick to some hard numbers uh, while we're about it. Okay. This is the All Chain Index. Finished 57,731.40 today. 0.25% up. And the Top 40 Index, 51,649.36. So what a nice little day on the JSE. Uh, Rand, a few, a few gyrations today. Trying to find direction. 14.13 to the dollar. Uh, 1768 to the pound and uh, 1584 to the euro. Oh, sorry, I've got a cataract in one of my eyes, kind of like acting up into your 50s, and suddenly you've got cataracts and things you've got to try and try and live with. Uh, gold is 1394.06. So, yeah, overall, not, a, no, no, not too bad a day for South Africa Incorporated. Um, I was I was actually expecting Aspen to be among the most among the most viewed shares on the JSE today, given that on Friday they announced that uh, uh, attempts to sell off one of the divisions hasn't hasn't worked out all that well. Um, uh, they've got around about 53 billion rands worth of debt that they're trying to get rid of, and uh, well, uh, as Aspen shareholders uh, can't be very happy with those developments. So I, I thought we'd see Aspen up there, but we didn't. Uh, the, the number one most viewed chair, as usual, Steinhoff in its traditional place, Sibania. I suppose you could almost say it's a semi-traditional place in second spot. DRD Gold in third and Aveng, uh, the construction company, the troubled construction company, which is also debt-laden, has only got a share price of three cents at the moment. Shame, man. I mean, imagine imagine being in Aveng and a Steinhoff, and a Steinhoff shareholder. Hmm? I think maybe the only way that you could make it worse would be if you had um, some Aspen shares as well. Aspen having trouble uh, offloading its debt. Avang having trouble offloading its debt. Um, DRD Gold also having having a bit of problems offloading its debt because uh, I think the reason why it's uh, it's in the news at the moment is because it announced recently that uh, efforts to sell ERPM Gold Mine on the East Rand in Benoni, Actonville, of all places, um, they were they, they were trying to sell it. They reckon you see 
uh, DRD Gold, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, ERPM, hasn't had any real mining activity in it for about, uh, to, uh, sure, around about 20 years now. Real genuine, like, mining activity. Um, DRD Gold was being kept alive for many years from subsidies from the government, uh, paying them to maintain underground uh, pumping works. Um, it, because you see, um, our, our mining works have digged into huge, big underground caverns full of water. And uh, these waters got trillions and trillions, you know, fresh, fresh water. There's, uh, some of it is, in actual fact, fossil water, like from the days of the dinosaurs. This water has been trapped underground uh, in caverns uh, created by fissures in the rocks uh, due to the Sterkfontein meteor that hit into the ground in South Africa around Paris a few million years ago. And uh, then, of course, by erosion, um, uh, acid water uh, moving into soft dolomitic rock, a whole jumbled mix of igneous and uh, sedimentary rock here in South Africa, thanks to that that Sterkfontein dome strike. Uh, created the Machalisburg Mountains, did all kinds of things, created an interesting geology and, of course, exposed the underground riverbeds that had been covered over by glacial flooding. And those underground riverbeds were rich, rich, rich in gold, and we call them reefs nowadays. That's what we're actually mining when we're mining. And uh, so you see, uh, ERPM uh, reckons that four kilometers down, they've still got more than uh, 6.3 million ounces of gold. Uh, the problem is uh, getting access to it. Um, I've spoken a few times about uh, various ideas that have come forward as to how we can access these super deep reefs. And uh, it's been suggested that we, uh, we, we start digging an inclined plane somewhere past Dalmas in Pumalanga. We start digging downwards at an angle of about 30 degrees, not more than that. Uh, 30 degrees, you start digging an inclined plane. Until you run about where ERPM is nowadays, you 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 dig that shaft down. Uh, it's 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 not a straight down shaft like we understand in traditional gold mines. This shaft travels down at an angle of thirty degrees, and there, thirty degrees, you build a subterranean city almost. Yeah, you build a subterranean city. You you dig out a chamber of rock underground like a kilometer by a kilometer by a kilometer or, or maybe three kilometers by three kilometers by three kilometers. Say you um, you you dig um, a cube out of the rock, three kilometers by three kilometers by three kilometers, serviced by an inclined plane of 30 degrees. Then basically what you've got, and, and this city is about a kilometer or two kilometers below the surface of the earth. This, uh, this huge big cube, uh, it's got uh, ventilation shafts and, and cooling shafts uh, feeding it and accessing it. It's got electricity coming down. And people live there underground 24 hours a day. You know, they basically go and live in underground city. And uh, that means that they're now two kilometers closer to the four-kilometer ore body. And so they only need to build a shaft servicing that ore body, a straight up-and-down shaft, um, um, a vertical shaft of two kilometers. They only need to dig a vertical shaft of two kilometers, and then they, 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 they bring that ore from four kilometers down to two kilometers, which is now their whole processing plant is there. 
The whole processing plant is underground. Processing everything is done underground. And only processed ore or perhaps even smelted gold bars are taken up the inclined plane. You see, the big problem ERPM and, and South Deep, uh, rather South Deep, uh, South 32, have is that uh, basically, uh, you know, you can, you've, you've got to lift your, your cage, taking your workers down, there's a double cage. You've, you've got to lift your cage directly up and down. You're working 180 degrees against gravity. So that means that you've got to develop cables. They just don't have the cables that are strong enough to, to uh, be able to carry a weight four kilometers. A four-kilometer cable is just not possible. So basically what, uh, what South the Deep has done is like try to have a, a series of shafts going down. You go from one, you go one kilometer down, you go another one, or maybe it's two kilometers, two kilometers. So um, this is what they've been trying to do. But the, the big idea is, hey, you know what? It's not just South 32 that's got a d deep ore body. Everyone knows that these ore bodies are, are shared right across South Africa because these are the same. River streams that are running from uh, those mountains above the Prenzberg, Sotbonsberg, they were like four or five kilometers high. Then they got covered by ice and got crushed. Uh, but before they were crushed, uh, they were feeding gold all the way down into the Free State. There's a harmony gold mines around Valcom. That's where they come from as well. So you see... The only real way to make big money out of our four-kilometer um, deep reefs in South Africa is to create the underground city below Benoni. Not a bad little idea. A very interesting idea. But, uh, of course, it'll take, well, I don't know, trillions of rands probably. One and a half trillion rands. One to one and a half trillion, maybe even two trillion rands. But uh, given the amount of gold that we'd be able to access, it, it should be profitable. But, of course, you need a whole lot of money. You need to have buy-in, and you need to have a government that wouldn't steal the money before we'd even built the mine. And with ANC in power, as long as they're in power, they're going to steal the money. That's it. Uh, even Julius Malema, he comes into power, is also going to steal the money. And you know he is going to steal the money because he's formed a political party. And a political party is merely the corporate uh, expression of the 1% ambitions when it comes to the political arena, whereas the corporation is just the political party in the commercial field. Uh, the trade union is just the political party or the corporation. It's a corporation. Trade union is as much a corporation as Anglo-American. Uh, it's, uh, it's a corporation. It's there to make money, to give its, its, uh, its leaders <clears throat> a comfortable living, you know, by exploiting the workers on the factory floor. Uh, the, the political party does it in, uh, is the corporation in the Senate uh, or the Parliament. The corporation is the corporation in the corporate sphere. Mm, yes. You know, you know, medical aids, soccer clubs, so on. Artificial personalities that don't really exist. But nevertheless, all of the rationalists in the capitalist world, they believe in it. They go and fight and kill Muslims in the name of Enron. Mm, this doesn't exist anymore, but well, don't worry about that. Okay, so we said we'd stick to hard news from now on. Okay, so what's happening with the platinum mining industry? Well, they're getting ready to sit out a wage deal to get, in, to get down to negotiations this week. They're getting into wage negotiations. Uh, but apparently, according to Bloomberg, they hold potentially two winning cards. Uh, they've got cash and metal stockpiles to endure a strike. Mm. It's very interesting, you know. The, 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 the platinum price has been very low for quite a while now. 
but uh, it's been low at a time when, when all of these gold and the platinum mining companies have apparently been building up their reserves. Now they say that they've got crazy reserves. They've, they've got plenty of reserves. They can outlast, uh, they can outlast uh, MCU going on strike for five months, going for a year, maybe even five years, the way they're talking. Um, but then why has the platinum price been so low? can only be because the platinum miners and the platinum bankers are colluding on uh, um, currency manipulation. This is where I think the Competition Commission should be looking. Uh, Reuters and Bloomberg, I've said many times on the show, 90% of all currency trades happen on their trading platforms, but they claim to be journalism outfits. Hmm? Can you imagine? Huh? It's uh, like, uh, imagine having a sports journalist um, who owns the stadium. And uh, and 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 he owns the uh, the sports teams. Would you would you trust his journalism? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He'd always be writing up, um, you know, um, Orlando Pirates. Yeah, go the Bucks, go the Bucks, go the Bucks. He's got his crossed arms. Yeah, go the Bucks, go the Bucks. Let him get on. Me, you know, he owns the Bucks. He owns the newspaper. Owns, you know. You can't trust the guy. He's he's part of the marketplace. You're supposed to be impartial as a journalist. Well, impartial they are not. Uh, uh, Chinese walls be damned is all I can say Reuters and Bloomberg are not journalism outfits they are crude prostitutes um, uh, pumping news uh, at the behest of their clients I mean I mean, even you, you, you go through the news feeds nowadays um, you come along you click on the story and it turns out it's an advert uh, it's a sponsored news article you know and they write sponsored on it such small little writing that you can't actually see it so anyway so yeah the platinum guys are getting getting ready but they say they've built up their reserves they've built up their stockpiles and hey they sit in there and they're ready uh even sabania says it has shored up its cash position ahead of the negotiations but uh, that's also despite an admission that uh, when uh, AMCU uh, started the five-month strike at Sabanya's gold mines, while the union eventually called off the action, the company was obliged to hold talks with the lenders as it came close to breaching bank covenants on repaying debt. So you see, if AMCU had held out for six months, you might have had a very different story going into the platinum strikes nowadays. But then uh, Joe Matunjwa, the head of, of AMCU, apparently he's become more of a diplomat as a result of that sacking he got at the hands of, um, uh, what's the head of uh, Uranium One, um, uh, Sabanye, uh, Neil Froneman. Well, Neil Froneman, uh, you've uh, got some people who are very, very unhappy. And uh, I've got a feeling that things could go a little bit nasty here as well. Hopefully we're not going to have a repeat of 2012 when uh, all of those miners were shot dead. Uh, and uh, hopefully we're going to have some peaceful negotiations. But it would appear to me from the attitudes or from the noises coming out from the management side, they're ready for war. They're ready for, they're in it for the duration. And if AMCU is AMCU, well then AMCU is in it for the duration as well. So, um and also, the thing about it is, you know, they're going on about we can't afford. I mean, you know, AMCU's asking for something like 17,000 Rand minimum um, salary. Uh, but uh, profits in the platinum uh, mining sector have been very, very healthy going forward. Um, uh, Amplats has jumped 51% in the last year. Sabania has rallied 63%. 
and um, I think Implats is is the is the outperformer in the sector. I think it's something like eighty percent for the year. So uh, very very definitely so that the platinum sector can afford to pay higher wages. Just exactly how much more they're going to pay is um, it remains to be seen. And Parler Platinum said today it expects to swing back to annual profit thanks to improved platinum uh, prices and higher sales volumes. Improved operational performance will also help headline earnings a share to bounce back in the year uh, from a loss of 171 cents in the previous year. This is why it's been doing so well. You see it's, it's been in turnaround. You may, you're making a loss in one year and uh, your results show that uh, all of the costs are behind you now and that you're going to be moving to just uh, profit generation the next year. And that's why Implas has been doing so well this year. It was making a loss last year and now it's in profit. So if you go and buy some Implas shares now, you can maybe even uh, share in the dividend if you like. Um, Implat says that it expects refined platinum production uh, to increase by 4% uh, to 1.5 million ounces, primarily due to improved performance at Impala Rustenburg, sure, and a stock release of platinum compared to a build-up in the comparative period. So you see they were building up their stocks in previous years. They weren't selling. They weren't making money. But you can say that that's a self-inflicted wound um, and and is only as a result of your bad trade union and labor relations uh, activities that you engage in. You're very, very bad at labor relations. That's why you have to keep this cost of stockpiles on your books. Maybe they should actually get some accountant to look at what is the cost of maintaining this huge big stockpile. And why do we have this stockpile? Only because of strikes. Maybe if we gave the guys higher wages... Uh, we wouldn't have to keep these stockpiles. Uh, we could sell that onto the market and we could turn our stockpile loss into a profit and uh, maybe the profit would help offset the salary. And so then, you know, da 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 da. Maybe they'd be looking at a different picture in Platts. But anyway, as I say, in Platts is the most outperforming share in the platinum sector this year. Nuclear Energy Corporation. Uh, we've dealt with this a few times on the show. It looks as though Jeff Gadebe got up to some very strange uh, stuff while he was a minister and uh, seems to have been single-handedly time trying to destroy the Nuclear Energy Corporation of South Africa uh, that uh, manages the Safari One reactor. Yeah, we still have a nuclear reactor in South Africa that does enrich uranium because we've got so much uranium in South Africa. In fact, we've got so much uranium in South Africa, it's seen as like, 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 um, like junk. It's... Uh, it's a, it's a dirty leftover stuff from our gold mining. Um, but anyway, uh, we've got uh, the, the, the Nuclear Energy Corporation runs the Safari One reactor at Pilindaba, there close to the hot uh, beer sport dam. And uh, it uses these to make medical isotopes and other kind of uh, medical pharmaceuticals uh, that are necessary in like the treatment of cancer and all of these kinds of things and also the manufacture of other, other, other medicines and so on. So, yeah, it, ma- it makes a lot of money. But Jeff Khadebe deliberately went and shut it down three times in his last year as uh, whatever kind of idiot minister he was. Um, minister of sabotaging the economy along with the... the you see, it, it, it strikes me, you see, I've, I've spoken a few times on the show as well about Charles Slovan, his, his two-stage uh, revolutionary theory in saying that South Africa wasn't ready for a communist socialist revolution uh, because of uh, its uh, its um, uneven development of its manufacturing base, uh, you didn't have a bigger, strong proletariat uh, working in the factories, 
And, uh, and so the class consciousness in South Africa wasn't sufficient enough to go to a socialist revolution straight away. First you had to have a bourgeois revolution, and after the bourgeois revolution you'd have a socialist revolution. Two-stage revolutionary theory. So you see the ANC believes it's won the bourgeois revolution, and now it must get ready for the socialist revolution. And the way it's doing that is by destroying the economy. Yes, that's right. Corruption is progressive, you see, in this idiotic kind of uh, frame of mind. Um, you go and you destroy the economy. You go and you destroy the institutions uh, in order to get rid of it. You see, because the institution, the economy itself, the way in which it is structured is in actual fact the main enemy of South Africa. And so this is what we need to get rid of. And I would say that is correct. I would say, you know, um, in terms of the kind of like racial nonsense debate that goes on in South Africa, why people blame the blacks for destroying the economy, uh, uh, which may be true in a way. But in actual fact, the economy needed to be destroyed. Yeah, the system needs to be destroyed. This is, in actual fact, black people are right. This is an abomination that we have in, in, the, in, this, uh, in this country. We destroy family ties. But that's one thing black people have. Well, not every single black person, I'm not saying. But on a generalized basis, when we kind of talk about these generalized South African debates, you've got to start generalizing. Otherwise, you're going to go cuckoo. Yeah, no, I'll tell you. Uh, black people do understand one thing, and that is the value of family. Clan. Clan. Go look at Kumbule Kaya on a Monday evening. Hey, you can go see how the, the efforts people are making in order to find lost relatives, lost uncles, aunties, grandfathers, children, huh? and the guilt that goes along with it because of the systemically induced breakup of family ties. We need to reestablish family ties in South Africa. But that's not what the ANC is doing. The ANC is just stealing at the moment. Huh? There isn't actually a policy. It's a problem. The ANC uh, came in with a big mouth in 1994, but it came up with no, no real policies. Guys come up with nothing. Come up with jackfruit is all I can say. They come up with nothing, nothing, nothing. Uh, they have contributed nothing. They have taken the reins and, the, you know, they, they don't know where, where to go. You know, they've got the reins in their hands, but they don't have a direction. That is the problem with the ANC in South Africa today, and that is the problem that we are lumbered with. We've got a bunch of dunces in Parliament. The ANC came along going on, wow, the apartheid is terrible and so on. All kind of intellectual university papers had been written all over the world about the terrors of apartheid. So, you know, they could just plagiarize when they came in. But, you know, uh, once they took over from power, they now had to come up with new policies, and they've been unable to come up with them. Not that they have had a friendly media to contend with and to pop popularize their policies. No, they've been fought tooth and nail every single step of the way. The ANC and Business Day, the two big enemies of the people in South Africa, preventing us from moving forward. Mm. Where do we go? We need to empower the clan, bring the clan into the economy, and get the clan to replace the corporation. Whether it's the corporation that is the trade union, whether it's a corporation that is the political party, whether it's the corporation that's a corporation, whether it's a corporation that's a pension fund, the medical aid. All of these things need to be replaced by the clan. A clan is an organizational unit, just like a corporation. It's just as a, cl a clan is an organic identity, your real identity, the identity you were born with, the identity you had in the womb, family identity, real identity, not the identity of Manchester United or Liverpool. 
Oh, don't go on about that now, boy. Not the identity of Eshita and uh, Raman Bala. Oh, don't go on about that now. Oh, let me tell you what. Ooh, ooh, on Friday night. No, I won't go on about what happened when I said something nasty about Eshita. And, uh, mm, yeah. Okay, right, fine. Okay, right, so the, um, Rob Adam. Uh, the chairman of NEXA, the Nuclear Energy Corporation of South Africa, who replaced suspended chairman Dr. Calvin Kem barely six months ago at the insistence of Jeff Khadebe, has resigned his position. He says he's got two more important things elsewhere. The South African Radio Astronomy Observatory doesn't have anything to do with um, to have anything to do with uh, nuclear power or anything in his entire life. The only only connection he had with uh, nuclear energy was uh, he tried to blow up Kuburg uh, in the 1970s. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, him and that Jenkins guy, very nice. Uh, but anyway, that's why Jeff Debbie brought him in. Oh, you tried to blow up Kuburg. Okay, we'll put you in charge of the Nuclear Energy Corporation. That's his only qualification he's had. After six months he's leaving, he says he's had enough. It's a bit like the ESCOM chairman leaving as well. He's now apparently joining Multichoice. Well, good luck to him there. Um, I, I reckon it's a disaster company. I'm sorry, I don't like multi-choice. Uh, but anyway, be that as it may. Uh, now, um, uh, Mr. Adam has resigned. Rob Adam has resigned. Dr. Calvin Kemp and the former board are suing the government. Uh, and, and basically the story going is, for some reason or other, Jeff Khadebe had the knife in for the Nuclear Energy Corporation of South Africa. Now, in terms of strategic global things, right, saying nuclear energy replaces oil energy as the energy for the future. That means the people that uh, enrich uranium are going to become the fuel suppliers. So the people that enrich uranium are going to be the new Arabia. So America will be a, will be a Arabia. Britain will be Arabia. France will be Arabia. Russia will be Arabia. And China will be Arabia. And also potentially South Africa. Well, now those are the, the, the big five in uh, the uh, enrichment business. They don't like us coming on board. Look what's happening with Iran. You know, people go on about Iran moving over the dollar. That's a reason why Iran's getting into trouble. No reason. They, 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 if, if nuclear becomes the future energy, then the enrichment people are going to be the fuel suppliers. So, you see, they will then be able to dictate world terms and support their currency with uh, oil. Instead of oil sales, it's it's going to be enriched uranium sales, you see. So, uh, you know, Jeff Khadebe, you know, he's he's, he's really acting like a pimp, trying to shut down uh, nuclear energy. The the ANC has done absolutely yeah, oh, well um, we won't go on again you can get really conspiracy theories when you start investigating nuclear let me tell you but i'm afraid yeah well i, I try to get down to nut, nuts and bolts i'm afraid this is all we have time for to discuss today i just like to say there was one little thing i wanted to add about nuclear oh yes you know, they say that, uh, you know, why do they put um, fluoride in the water? I reckon they put fluoride in the water to subsidize the nuclear industry uh, so that enough fluoride is going to be produced in, uh, because fluoride is needed for the cooling of, of, nuclear, of nuclear rods in the nuclear power stations. They use fluoride to cool down the rods, you see. So they need a lot of fluoride. But then that would mean that the nuclear energy, only people using fluoride would be the nuclear energy, 
uh, sector. And so the sector would have to pay for all that fluoride itself, and that would make nuclear energy um, <clears throat> very expensive. So in order to share the cost, they put fluoride into the water, and you have us like digging up fluoride all over the world. But anyway, that's my little take on that whole thing. I'm afraid that that's all the conspiracies we have time for for today. Jazakumullah for joining us. And make dua that whatever trade and activity you got up to today is profitable. And above all, halal. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.